Lord. Today I'm reading a paragraph from This Day with God, page 252, paragraph 1. This Day with God, 252, paragraph 1. If the followers of Christ were but earnest seekers after wisdom, they would be led into rich fields of truth as yet wholly unknown to them. What a tremendous promise. Wholly unknown to them if they were only earnest seekers after truth. He who will give himself to God as fully as did Moses will be guided by the divine hand as verily as was the great leader of Israel. He may be lowly and apparently ungifted, yet if with a loving, trusting heart he obeys every intimation of God's will, his powers will be purified, ennobled, energized, and his capabilities will be increased. As he treasures the lessons of divine wisdom, a sacred commission will be entrusted to him. He will be enabled to make his life an honor to God and a blessing to the world. Seems to me as though every sentence is this, in this paragraph is fraught with tremendous promises. Every sentence. Very, very important. The Lord is giving us this admonition, the promises that will help us in our onward walk. The upward, uh, no, the um, lift him up, page 58. Lift him up, page 58. And this is paragraph, paragraphs 1 and 2. Christ died on the cross to save the world from, per from perishing in sin. He asks your cooperation in this world. You are to be his helping hand. With earnest, unwearying effort, you are to seek to save the lost. Now, how do we do that here at Bashan Hill? We're not outside to really come in contact with the lost. But by being here on God's holy hill, where we're building up his pasture, we are seeking to save the lost because it's the literature that's going out to help the lost. We don't have preachers and teachers such as the world has. So we are, we are here seeking to save the lost, and it says that if we work with earnest, unwearying effort, we are cooperating with the Lord. Remember that it was for your sins that made the cross necessary. So when you think of the cross, it's not all cross, cross, cross. It's what is involved in the cross our sins that made it necessary. For life and for death, you are bound up with him as a part of the great plan of redemption. The transforming power of Christ's grace molds the one who gives himself to God's service. The transforming power of Christ's grace molds the one who gives himself in God's service, or to God's service. Now, if we are not experiencing that transforming power as we work for God from day to day, then we haven't, it's evident that we haven't given ourselves fully, as I read this morning. It's not an unreserved um, surrender. 
imbued with the spirit of the Redeemer, he is ready to deny self, ready to take up the cross, ready to make any sacrifice for the Master. No longer can he be indifferent to the souls perishing around him. He is lifted up above self-serving. He has been created anew in Christ, and self-serving has no place in his life. He realizes that every part of his being belongs to Christ, who has redeemed him from the slavery of sin, that every moment of his future has been bought with the precious life blood of God's only begotten Son. Study today is based on the first and second temples, type and antitype. That's the track here. Now, the temples, you know, it says it's a type, type and antitype. Why did God use temples or a temple to represent his church or to make it a type? Obviously, to teach a special lesson in this particular, on this particular subject. Sometimes he, he uses different symbols to represent his church, as you all know. If he wants to teach, his, if he wants to show his church as a light-producing agency, what does he use? A candlestick. If he wants to use his, uh, to show that his church is strong and firm, enduring all the blasts and wintry winds, what does he use? A mountain, right? And if he wants to show his church producing converts, what does he use? A woman. So now he wants to show his church with glory, with grandeur, with magnificence, with beauty. And that is why he's using the temples. And there were two temples particularly that we're going to study about. It's the temple of Solomon, the temple that Solomon built, and the temple that the Jews built after their captivity. And in these two temples, there's a great lesson for us. It divides the church into two sections, as you'll notice on the chart. The first section here is um, the top, which is the type. Here you have the first section. That's the top part of this chart of Zechariah 4. And in the second section, you have this part, which is the anti-type. And you'll see where it leads us right on to this golden candlestick. That's the beauty of this study. The climax is very important. As I said before, he wants to show the glory of that will attend his church. And that is why he used the temple. He wants to show the worshipers who will be in that church. That's another reason why he used the temple to represent his church. Now, first of all, we'll consider the first temple, which is Solomon's temple. You know, David wanted to build that temple. He said he was happy. His house was beautiful. Why live in a beautiful sealed house and leave the, the Lord's house undone, that there was no place to worship him properly? So he began with the, uh, gathering whatever, all his plans, and the Lord said, No, David, you're not to build a temple. So your son will build a temple. So he called Solomon and he gave him the sacred charge of building this temple, this magnificent temple that it turned out to be. Solomon began to build a temple in the fourth year of his reign. 
and it wasn't finished until the 11th year. And one chronologist says it took seven and a half years, undoubtedly it did. For seven and a half years, the temple was in building. So you could imagine what went into the temple, what glory, what grandeur, what magnificence. Solomon, uh, he went ahead and he made an arrangement or an, or an agreement with Hiram, king of Tyre, that he would send his own men to cut the cypress, this, this lumber as we call it today, the cypress and the cedar, to bring it back to build the temple. And he sent, he made arrangements also for men to go to Lebanon and to get the, the, the building blocks, the stone that was necessary for this building. And what was so um, interesting to me, and I know it's interesting to everyone, that there wasn't heard the sound of an axe, a hammer, or a tool for all seven years in building that temple. Can you imagine these people with the wisdom and understanding that they had? Everything was precisely made and cut and fit, cut to fit and brought to the temple site. And everything fitted per per perfectly, save for one stone. Pardon me, yeah. One stone was so big and uh, they looked at it and they said, where are we going to put this stone? We really don't need it. Let's leave it alone. Because it wasn't what they thought what they wanted, so they left it alone. And a long time after, all of a sudden, they were ready to lay the cornerstone, which is a very important part of the building. And then they thought, well, where is that peculiar stone that we didn't want? They went back and they found it. And in spite of weather conditions, or whatever it was laying there, it never cracked. Let me read about it to you from Desire of Ages. This is Desire of Ages, pages 597 and 598. This is the last paragraph from 597. According to the prophecy of the rejected stone, Christ referred to an actual occurrence in the history of Israel. The incident was connected with the building of the first temple. While it had special application at the time of Christ's first advent and should have appealed with special force to the Jews, it also has a lesson for us. And this is why we're studying the temple type. It's not to just study about Solomon's temple or the Jews' temple, but to find out what is the special lesson for us at this time. When the temple of Solomon was erected, the immense stones for the walls and the foundations were entirely prepared at the quarry, quarry. After they were brought to the place of building, not an instrument was to be used upon them. The workmen had only to place them in position. What skill and what accuracy those workmen had. For, for use in the foundation, one stone of unusual size and peculiar shape had been brought, but the workmen could find no place for it and, it would, not, and would not accept it. It was an annoyance to them as it lay unused in their way. Long it remained a rejected stone. But when the builders came to the laying of the corner, 
They search for a long time to find a stone of sufficient size and strength and of the proper shape to take that particular place and bear the great weight which, which would rest upon it. Should they make an unwise choice for this important place, the safety of the entire building would be endangered. They must find a stone capable of resisting the influence of the sun and of the frost and of tempest. Several stones had at different times been chosen, but under the pressure of immense weights, they had crumbled to pieces. Others could not bear the test of the sudden atmospheric changes, but at last attention was called to the stone so long rejected. It had been exposed to the air, to sun and storm, without revealing the slightest crack. The builders examined the stone. It was born, it had borne every test but one. If it could bear the test of severe pressure, they decided to accept it for the cornerstone. The trial was made, the stone was accepted, brought to its assigned position, and found it to be an exact fit. In prophetic vision, Isaiah was shown that this stone was a symbol of Christ. And you could read that for yourself in Isaiah, Isaiah 8, 13 through 15. But David also prophetically spoke of that stone even before the temple was built. Let's read about that from uh, Psalms 118, Psalms 118, and this is verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, it was marvelous indeed to use a rejected stone that, with, that had withstood the atmospheric conditions. But what is so marvelous is that Christ is represented by that stone. For he himself said that. Let's turn and read his own testimony from Matthew uh, 21, verse 42. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stones which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this stone that was rejected in the temple of Solomon is a type of Christ. And the rejection of it is a type of the Jewish nation when they rejected him wholesale as a nation. Let's read about that from Acts, the fourth chapter, verses 10 and 11. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him from the dead, even by him that this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of your builders, which has become the head of the corner. So the whole Jewish nation rejected him, the same man, Christ Jesus, just as they did in the building of Solomon's temple. 
Now Paul compared the building uh, that stone to Christ and the building of the spiritual temple. Let's read about his comparison in Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. So Jesus is the, he, Paul is, uh, compares the building of the temple with Christ the cornerstone and with Christians as being the, the, the building fitly framed together. Now it's within very interesting to read about the temple and you'll find the, the uh, Solomon's temple, you'll find it in 1 Kings 6. And I was really intrigued and I wish I understood everything about it. When I looked about, I didn't have as much time to look up on this, but I looked in um, the commentary. I think it was the SDA commentary, or it could have been uh, a Bible dictionary. And they said that um, this Solomon's temple was somewhat out of proportion, but it was double the size of the tabernacle. I was amazing to see, to read about all the little rooms and all that they had, the place where the ark was safe and the extravagance, the gold being overlaid with gold and the golden vessels and all that was put into it, all these little rooms on the side and everywhere on the upper floor. The Lord gave them a special wisdom. Let's turn and read Second Kings 6 verse 7 and you'll re see what I told you there about the um, not a sound of the hammer. That's just going to reinforce what I said before, Second, uh, First Kings 6, verse 7. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stones made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was building. And that was amazing to me. I mean, it's very interesting because I can't figure building anything without the tools today. Everywhere you go, even when things are placed, even these prefabricated buildings, you've got to hear some sort of hammer or tool or, or something going on. But it wasn't so with this house. So when the temple was built, it was magnificent it was beautiful it was grand that's here this is solomon's temple and the jews were must have been very happy to have a place like that to worship in, and to know that they were meeting with god himself but that temple didn't continue as we all know that's what the type shows what happened to the temple in 538 babylon nebuchadnezzar went in there, took the people away, took them away from their homeland up here. You see the, the temple um, destroyed, he robbed the temple, he took away all their sacred vessels and put them in his heathen temple. So he defiled the temple of God, broke it down, robbed it, and he established a pagan system of worship. 
and it continued like that until Belshazzar became king. And he went in the height of his monarchy and his debauchery, drinking and having that big party, the Medes and Persia went in. And this is what happened over here. The empire of, ba this is their empire here is fallen now because the Medes and Persia went, Medes and Persian went in and they slew Belshazzar. Keep that in mind. Because that, that, that fits here in the antitype as we come down in the second, second part uh, of, the, um, of the study. This is the first section. You have the second section or the second part. So everything that you see up here in the type, you're going to have to find it down here in the antitype because it fits. Type has to fit antitype. So... <clears throat> When he slew Belshazzar, that marked the freedom of the Jews. They were no longer captives. They were free then. And that's something, keep in mind, when we come down here, we learn what caused the freedom of God's people and how were they in captivity. And most we know that already, but we'll come down and see it. So... They were freed, bear in mind, at the end of their captivity, but they didn't have a temple yet. And they were returning to their homeland, and they had a decree. So who made the first decree to rebuild the temple? Cyrus. Somebody showed Cyrus his name in prophecy. And he was very impressed. He, be he gave his heart to the Lord, and he made a decree, and he told them, Go build a temple to serve your God. Whatever you need, I will give you. Just go ahead and build a temple. So that was a good thing. Well, what is wrong with that? That was what they wanted. They were lonesome. They wanted their homeland. They cried for their homeland. They cried for their temple. They were in a strange land. And in the Psalms you will read when they were told to sing, they say, how can we sing? in a strange land. And so this was a good opportunity for them to go and build a land, their temple and go back, you know, with their temple. But what happened? They were factitious Jews, and they didn't want them to build it, and they caused trouble. See, this is the first decree. And they began to uh, cause trouble among the people, and they didn't want them to build, so the people grew careless and they didn't continue. And then there was a second degree decree that came up by Darius, and he gave the people uh, power again, added power and authority, go in there and start building your temples. You know, continue with the building of the temple. And they, and the same thing, the enemies of the temple building caused trouble again, and they prevailed and they caused the Jews to stop the work completely. So is the temple ever going to be built? Is God's word going to return to him void? It is his will that the temple should be built. And so the third decree that was issued over here carried a death sentence to it. Let's read about it in Ezra. Ezra 6, verses 11 to 12. And then 13 and 14. Also, I have made a decree 
that whosoever shall alter this word, let timber be pulled down from his house, and being set up, let him be hanged thereon, and let his, let his house be made a dunghill for this one. So you see what was connected with this? This was business. The Lord wasn't going to uh, fool around, as we would say. He wasn't going to allow them to do that. So he had a decree, a death decree, connected with this third decree. God that had caused the name to dwell, his name to dwell there, that shall, that shall put to their hand to alter and to destroy his house, this house of God, which is at Jerusalem. I, Darius, have made a decree that it be done with speed. Then Tatna, governor on this side of the river, Shitarbosnei, and their companions, according to that which Darius of the king had sent, so did speedily. And the elders of the Jews builded, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they built it and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So this is what happened. Haggai and Zechariah were there to encourage them. They needed strengthening. God sees that we all need strengthening. That's why he has prophets and teachers and people to help us. If we were so strong, we wouldn't need anybody to help us. But these people need help, needed help, and God sent Haggai and Zechariah to help them. But in helping them, they also prophesied of another temple to come. And it wasn't talking about their temple at all, for you could see that. Let's read about that from Haggai 2, verses 3 and 9. But of Haggai 2, 3, and 9. Who is left among you that saw this house, which is Solomon's temple, in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give you peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, all those who were still alive when this second temple went up, they knew that the glory was nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple, nothing at all. It was magnificent. But here, Haggai is saying that the glory of this second temple is more than what was in Solomon's temple. So obviously, what he's talking about is this temple down here. This first, this Solomon's temple, which typified the antitype of the first Christian church. Now, what made it so glorious? Was it the building? No, what? The presence, the presence of the Lord. Christ Himself was there. So, while this other building was on externalities and was just talking of the magnificence of the literal temple. This build, this other temple here, is talking about the spiritual magnificence, the glory of that temple. 
Do you suppose that the people understood what Haggai was saying back in his day? No, because it wasn't time yet for them to know it. And then in Zechariah 6, verses 12, 13, and 15, this is what, the, again, they were told. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest unto his throne, upon his throne, and a council of peace shall be between them both. And they, shall, they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Zechariah 6, 12, 13, and 15. So you could see that even though they were in Haggai and Zechariah were encouraging the builders to finish their work, yet they were prophesying of this other temple. But what temple in reality they were prophesying? Not, of the, not even of the first, uh, Christi, the first part of the second section, because this was glorious and beautiful with Christ, the branch himself in it. But when you come down to the last section of the church, which we will get into, that is going to be even more glorious and even more beautiful. Nothing could be compared with it because you will have not only one Christ manifested in one person as he was here as he came in humanity, but you are going to have 144,000 saviors and deliverers. And so the glory of this latter house is greater by far than the glory of this former house because you'll have 144,000 saviors and deliverers. And this is what we're working for. This is what God is working for. And it's taken a long time, just as it took the factitious Jews or the Jews a long time because of all the problems and the factitious Jews and the enemies of those who were opposed to building the temple. This is why it took so long. And God had to put teeth into it, as it were, into the decree, as it were, before the temple was built. Now, this first temple with Christ himself, we know how he worked and he labored and how he lived the overcomer's life. He set a perfect example for us. That is why we should study his, his life so much. And this is why we're told we should spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. A beautiful example. But something happened after Christ's crucifixion and his ascension and resurrection, apostasy crept into the church little by little until in 538, God's people were robbed of the temple again, completely taken out, taken away, not only from the temple per se. The temple alone was not destroyed, but they were taken into captivity just as it was up here in the type by Babylon. This was a time of papal supremacy from 538 to 1798. The papacy established a false priesthood, mediatorial right, just to get rid of the, the true mediatorial right. They established a, a false day for the worship. 
and this is what this, this is um, the condition that existed during these years from 1200 for 1260 years. Now today we don't even really understand what papal supre supremacy is and the suppression the people were under the people of the world. They were under papal domination, domination. And if you read in the Desire of Ages, you'd wonder how could men of such great intellect and intelligence bow down to popery as they did. But that's what happened. And even kings, as you know, crawled on their mm -hmm. knees. And it's very interesting and astonishing to read all that went on back in those days. But God, like he sustained his faithful people back in the days of um, the Babylonian captivity, just so he nourished his people, that's what we were told. He nourished them for a time and a times and dividing of times. And then their captivity had to come to an end. And just as in the type, their captivity came to the end with the death of the Pope in 1798. He lost his complete power. It wasn't till he didn't have any more power in 1798. And that is how the people were freed from papal supremacy and, and domination. Now, you remember how Bel Belshazzar was slain in the type, and that freed God's people back then? Just so God's people were freed here with the death of the Pope in 1798. Now, the main object of this study was to rebuild the temple. That's what we're studying about, to rebuild the temple. And this is how it took three, dec three decrees here to complete the temple. It's taken three decrees here in the antitype for God to have this church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, this glorious church. So the first decree came about in 1844, as we know, when the first and second angel's message was preached. Fear God and give glory to him, for all the judgment has come, and Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But no sooner had the messages been preached, that apostasy crept in, and it didn't even come to its conclusion, first, second, and third angel's message. Let's read about it from this track, track number 20. And this is from page 25 and 26. Moving now to the antitype, we must look for a message sometime after 1798 that would proclaim the so-called Christian churches as being Babylon and their worship false. This is just what happened. Immediately after 1844, the second angel's message of Revelation 14, 18, it was proclaimed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because he made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. With the proclamation of the fall of Babylon, it was announced that the so-called Christian festivals, such as Sunday keeping, Christmas, Easter, baptism by sprinkling, and other false doctrines were unbiblical of, and of pagan origin. Well, isn't that what happened in 1844? The true Sabbath was again brought to light, and the truth and the sanctuary was restored. So this is what the Lord did after the fall of popery, just as it was with the Jews after the death of 
uh, or the invasion of Babylon, uh, and when Medo-Persia went in, then they were free. Now continuing, but as ancient Babylon failed to renounce the pagan system of worship and to adopt the worship of the only true God, just so present-day Christendom has refused to reform or to turn from their practices the mediatorial work of the heavenly sanctuary jointly with the seven-day Sabbath was rejected. Though Cyrus freely offered his resources to finance the construction of the house of God and its sacred service, and authoritatively commanded that it must be built, the factitious Jews frustrated the progress of the foundation and retarded its completeness. In the antitype, though the message decree in 1844 was proclaimed to build the house of God and to restore true worship according to the law and the prophets, the type reveals that the progress has been frustrated and its completeness retarded by the factitious Jews on true Seventh-day Adventists. So you see who are the factitious Jews today? The antitype of the factitious Jews? The untrue Seventh-day Adventists. This fact is plainly stated in the following solemn words, and this is from 5T217, paragraphs 1 and 2. I am filled with sadness when I think of our condition as a people. The Lord has not closed heaven to us, but our own course of continual backsliding has separated us from God. Pride, covetousness, and love of the world have lived in the heart without fear of, banish or of banishment or condemnation. The church has turned back from following Christ her leader, and is steadily retreating toward Egypt. Yet, few are alarmed or astonished. So, the first decree, you see what happened. The message didn't go forward as it should. So, when did we have the second decree? This was the decree in 1888, when the Lord sent the message of righteousness by faith. And it says that though this decree carry additional power, just like the second decree did when Darius gave that, the temple foes, they made the Jews to cease, just so it, it happened. And typically, it says that when this message came in 1888, it was rejected. Here is a statement from Testimonies to Ministers, pages 91 and 92. The Lord, in his great mercy, sent a most precious message to his people. And you know, today they want us to believe that that message was accepted. They want us to believe that. And therefore, these words don't mean anything if you believe what they're saying. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior, the sacrifice for sins of the world. It presented justification through faith in the surety it invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. Many have lost sight of Jesus. And this is why it was important to have these decrees. Many have lost sight. This is not the world, you know. This is talking about the church. 
God wants his church to be the light of the world, but she's not the light of the world. Read it. She, it says in so many words in volume 5, page 727, that the church is not the light of the world today. Now going on further, here is a statement that's copied in this book from page 27, track number 20, page 27, and it's taken from Special Testimony to Review and Herald Office, pages 16 and 17, and written in 1896. I shall never again, I think, be called to stand under, direct, under the direction of the Holy Spirit as I stood at Minneapolis. The presence of Jesus was with me. All assembled in the meeting had an opportunity to place themselves on the side of truth by receiving the Holy Spirit which was sent by God in such a rich current of love and mercy. But in the room occupied by some of our people were heard, heard ridicule, criticism, jeering, and laughter. Today they don't want us to believe that. They have written many, many books on 1888, and they acted as though it was a message for them which they accepted in all those books, except those that are written by other ministries and other people, those who gather these statements together. Just think of that, such an important meeting, and there they, 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 they was heard ridicule, criticism, jeering, laughter. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit were attributed to fanaticism. The scenes which took place in the meeting, in that meeting, made the God of heaven ashamed to call those who took part in them his brethren. All this the heavenly watcher noticed and was written in the book of God's remembrance. So you could see what terrible condemnation is written against God's people in the books of heaven. They're not going out there to build a temple. They're not looking for the purified church because that was what the message was about. They didn't want it. Now here's another statement from Testimonies to Ministers, pages 79 and 80. They began the satanic work at Minneapolis. Afterwards, when they saw and felt the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, testifying that the message was of God, they hated it the more because it was a testimony against them. Yet these men have been holding positions of trust and have been molding the work after their own similitude as far as they possibly could. Now you'd wonder in the face of these statements, how could they dare deny that the 1888 message was rejected? You know what is their alibi? They say that it was only rejected by a few of the people and not by the general conference as a whole. So they get, get out of it that way. They think they get getting out of it, but they're not because it says they are molding the work after their own similitude as far as they possibly could, and it's not only just a few men. And now in the same book, Testimonies to Ministers, page 7 to 9, Paragraphs 2 and 3, it says, But if they nourish the same spirit that marked their course of action, both before and after the Minneapolis meeting, they will fill up to the full the deeds of those whom Christ condemned when he was upon the earth. The perils of the last days are upon us. 
and this is a condition of the church. These factitious Jews, as we're told here, the unconverted Seventh-day Adventists, they're keeping back the progress of the world. They don't want to see a pure church. They really don't. They'll tell you the wheat and the tears will grow together until the harvest. The harvest they interpret represent the second coming of Christ. So really they are not interested in seeing a purified church. Why? Just because they want to continue in their sins. And they think in the last minute, God will somehow miraculously purify them. And it's a shame to see and read all that is going on behind the scenes. They come out on the pulpit and they preach a sermon and you think these people are sanctified and holy. And out of the pulpit, their lives testify a different story. Mr. Ministers, page 468, show us how their religion is so much like apostate Israel. The religion of many today, uh, many among us, will be the religion of apostate Israel because they love their own way and forsake the way of the Lord. The only religion of the Bible that teaches forgiveness only through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior, that advocates righteousness by faith of the Son of God, has been slighted, spoken against, ridiculed, and rejected. So why would they say this other statement that was written and taken up or reproaches apocryphal, I don't know, because the same words are used, exactly. And we really don't need that statement because it's written right here in that book, and we don't have that um, track, so they can say it's apocryphal. So now, you see how the churches, these unconverted Seventh-day Adventists, they, the second decree has gone out. They don't want it. They speak against the message, slighted, spoken against, ridiculed, and rejected. It has been denounced as leading to enthusiasm and fanaticism, and I read that from the other page in this book. But it is the life of Jesus Christ in the soul. It is the active principle of love imparted by the Holy Spirit that alone will make the soul fruitful unto good works. That is what is build, the temp, building the temple is all about. It's making the love of Christ in our hearts, making us purified people, clean and pure, restoring the temple of God, bringing in that golden candlestick of Zechariah 4. The love of Christ is the force of power and power of every message for God that ever fell from human lips. What kind of a future is before us? if we shall fail to comply into the unity of the faith. Now, she didn't know about the third decree. It looked so bleak to her. And she wrote over and over that she seldom weep, uh, uh, that she weeps, her, uh, what is it? She's weeping and the tears are falling from, off of, from her eyes to the paper because of the condition of the church. So she didn't know that there, is going to, that there was going to be a third decree, but just as the type shows, in the anti-type, there must be a third decree. And that was the message that came in 1929. And it came telling us about the purification of the church and what is going to happen. There, there's a death decree connected with that message. This message, as we know, is the message of the rod, and copies of the first book ever printed, which is the Shepherd's Rod, Volume 1, were sent 
at the, to all the then known worldwide sisterhood of churches, letting them know what is God is going to do about it. Let's read about that death decree, even though we all know about it. We'll just refresh our memories with Ezekiel, the ninth chapter, verses 2 through 6. Ezekiel 9, 2, 3, 6, 2, 3, 6. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen with a writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side. And, said, and, and, the, and the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in my hearing, Go ye after him through the city, and smite. Let not your eyes peer, neither have pity, have ye pity, slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, and come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. So you see, just as it's, we were told in Ezra 6, that they were to go forward and build that temple, otherwise their houses wouldn't that would become downhill, they would be destroyed, just so God means business. And he sent this message about Ezekiel 9 taking place in the church. This is a statement here that was quoted, and you folk know about it. It's from Manuscript Release. I'm reading it from this book, from page, page 30. A manuscript release is Volume 1, page 260, paragraph 2. Study the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. These words will be literally fulfilled. Yet the time is passing and the people are asleep. You see how many much time has gone by since this message came? And she saw prophetically that the time is passing and the people are asleep. But time was passing since the first decree came. And the unconverted Seventh-day Adventists have been keeping back the work since then. Not a great while longer will the Lord bear with the people who have such great and important truth revealed to them, but who refuse to bring these truths into their individual experience. The time is short. God is calling. Will you hear? Will you receive your mess his message? Will you be converted before it's too late? Soon, very soon. Every case will be decided for eternity. Such strong words and such appealing words. And only a blind angel of, or the blind angel of Lady Pedicea could fail to see it. Deaf have no hear, ears to hear. And this is why they don't see what God is about to do. But that third decree is to take place. And when it does, and it weeds out the church, the unconverted, then we're told that God will have a, p 
pure, true, sanctified ministry come right here into the second section of the church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. PG 13, pages 4 through 6. I'll read it from this book. From track number 19, it's here on page 31. 1 PG 13, pages 4 through 6. Haggai 2, 6 through 8. For thus said the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heaven and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, said the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. That the prophecy in these verses is yet to be fulfilled is very obvious. For in the day this temple is built, God is to shake the heavens, the earth, and the nations. So you see that, that when Haggai was talking, although he was encouraging the people, it, it was a prophecy for our day. That their expectation is then to come and that the temple is to be filled with glory, that the builders are not to worry about finances. It is true that men control and use silver and gold, but it must not be forgotten that all belongs to God, and that if he has need of it, he is well able to take it and do what he will with it, that the builders need not fear a shortage if they use it as God would have them use it. See what is our responsibility now? To use the silver and gold as God would have us use it so there'd be no waste. This is why my husband and, uh, was very, very opposed to all waste, whether it be water, whether it be lights, whether it be food, whether it be time, whether it be tools, whether it be uh, equipment or, or whatever. All waste, if we use what God has given us faithfully, there'll never be a shortage. Since it is plain that the ancient temple was typical of a temple to be built in the day God shakes the heavens, the earth, and the nations, the subject becomes absolutely clear that inspiration is here speaking of an antitypical temple. The verse 9, the glory of this latter reign house, <laughs> the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. The promise is that the glory which attended Solomon's temple shall be, shall be far exceeded by the antitypical one, which is to be rebuilt by the church purified, the church during the harvest time the time in which God shakes the heaven, the earth, the nations during the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Since these promises were not fulfilled in the day of Zerubbabel's temple, the subject becomes crystal clear that they are now to be fulfilled. And since these latter-day truths are now revealed to us, we must be the builders of it the glory of which is to exceed the glory of the past. Moreover, 
The place where the Santitypical Temple is to be situated is to have peace. And the way that peace is, is completely to be achieved is told in verses 20 and 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens of, and the earth, and I will destroy the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy this, no, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. Again, it seems that the day the Lord shakes the heaven and the earth, he also destroys the, kingdom of, the kingdoms of the earth by allowing them to kill one another. No wonder then that the nations are now engaged in an armament race and the whole world is on the verge of plunging into the bloodiest conflict ever known. It is difficult for anyone to come to any conclusion that, than that the great and dreadful day is at hand. I don't know what else the Lord could do to help us to understand this. Now, Zachar, uh, 1 PG 10, page 23. It says, after it quotes Haggai 2, 21 and 23, which we just read, it says, here we are told that in the day God destroys the strength of the heathen kingdoms, which event is yet future, he makes ancient Zerubbabel a signet of Zerubbabel in the day the strength of the kingdom is destroyed. So who, what does he, who does he make a signet? Ancient Zerubbabel. Now who is that Zerubbabel? 1 PG 14, 20 and 21. Whom does Zerubbabel represent? The word of the Lord explains that ancient Zerubbabel is a signet, a type, at the time God overthrows the thrones of the kingdom. At the time their armies are destroyed by one brother Christian sword cutting another brother Christian. Christian. Now you could imagine that, one Christian fighting another Christian, and that's what is going on. Zerubbabel therefore represents God's servant at the time the crown kings, throne of kingdoms are overthrown and in which time one Christian nation is at war with another Christian nation. And since the crown kings are fast passing away and other forms of government are taking their place, all proves that antitypical Zerubbabel's appearance is now due and the Lord's own answer is that the hands of Zerubbabel had laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. So it's a marvelous promise, great and precious that the Lord has in store for us that God is using all of us as Zerubbabel's in this great closing work for the church. Very soon the work is going to come to its end as I've read before. And we will see that the second section of the church come right in here. A beautiful church. And now it has to be because we know so much about this church already. The Lord has taken time to give us these two uh, olive trees in the Old and the New Testament. A period of time. Everything took a period of time. 
it's taken time to get those two pipes and to put the or to extract the oil from the two trees and to put them into the bowl, the oil into the bowl. It took a period of time for us to use all the prophets for the Bible to, to give us the Word of God as we have it in the Old and the New Testament. Then he, he used the two prophets in these days, uh, E.G. White and D.B. Harder, and they brought all the oil that they could, that we need for this period fill the bowl up to the brim. So what remains now to be done? The candlestick is almost ready to shine into the world, to give its light into the world. What God is doing now is getting these tubes ready so that the oil can freely flow through them and lighten the candlestick. When God has that accomplished, this will indeed be the light of the world. When every honest soul will come in from all the nations. That's what I read from the teaching. When he will break in pieces the nations of the world. Well, one, as we see one nation against each other now, it will be even more so in, those, in this day when this church is ready. So since we have know this glorious truth, should we be, what, I should ask this, what manner of men should we be? God is preparing us, getting us cleaned up. That's why we hear over and over again all these studies and references on character building all the time, over and over. And if we weren't so hard-hearted and so slow to accept God's word, things might have come to an end already. Nations are already, we're told. All that remains is for us to cast away our idols. And it's taken a long time. When we read about the children of Israel, and we wonder how could they be like this? They forgot, they forgot, they forgot. What about us? If a history was written, the same thing would be said over and over again about us, each as individuals and corporately. We forget, we forget, we forget. So let us plan by God's grace that we're going to be among the chosen few, the 144,000. We don't know all that we know of those who will be in that group. We really don't know. People are working for the message. Do you know that in the days when they were building the ark, there must have been people who helped with the ark for quite a while and then they gave up? They never endured. It took too long. They couldn't wait and they were taken in by the sophistries of the leading men of their age. So what are we going to do today? Are we making our calling and election sure? For sure that we're going to do it is by the kind of building blocks we're putting into our lives every day. Are we taking time for study, for prayer, for self-examination? You know, it's so nice to stop and talk here and there. We enjoy ourselves in a little conversation. But when time is limited, where do you have the time to do that? We only have so much time. God gave us that amount of time. He brought us here to make us time geniuses. We can't waste it in idle or frivolous talk. And we must be about our Father's business. So it is my prayer that the Lord will give us the grace and the strength to press forward and that we will be among antitypical Zerubbabel when that glad day comes to receive our reward. 
Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. You can find us online at www.bashanhill.org and you can call us at 417-835-2162.